Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 404. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 404 you're listening to. My guest today is recording engineer, producer, and trombonist, Chris Clark. Chris is based in Alexandria, Virginia, and he works with a wide array of classical artists, including the Thomas Circle Singers and the Lantana Trio. One thing that's interesting about Chris is, you know, I mentioned that he plays trombone. He actually plays in the president's own United States Marine Band, as in the president of the United States. You know, wherever the president will travel and a band is needed, this is the band that they use. And Chris has been involved in this since 1999. Now, I've seen the president's own Marine Band here in Lafayette. They came through playing on a tour. Yeah, they tour. Yeah, they go out, they play, they make albums. It's almost like a, a rock band in some respects that's out touring and making records. But we're going to talk about all of it. This is going to be a little bit different interview. The first half, we're going to talk about Chris's journey as a trombonist in music and obviously his time in the Marine Corps band and what, what that means. And then we'll talk about his journey into the world of classical recording, which is also fascinating to me because that's not something I do. That's not in my wheelhouse. And he definitely has a knack for it. So we'll talk all about it. So Chris Clark coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about whatever works. I think you all are well aware that there are so many instructional things out there telling you how to do audio. And I'm sure a lot of you, including myself, we all pay attention to those things, whether it's a YouTube channel, a subscription-based service that we uh, learn new lessons each month, or you know, some variation on that. Plus, on top of all the free content that's out there, like this podcast and the other podcasts from all my other friends, there's just a crap ton of information. And you know, I think it's it's great. We live in a fantastic time to take it all in. However, I'm going to run counter to a lot of this for the moment and uh, even, you know, running counter to myself. There's a point at which you need to shut some of this stuff out or all of it for periods of time and just do your thing. Granted, a lot of great people out doing a lot of great stuff, telling you some great information. You know, and obviously there's some crap information out there too, but for the most part, there's a lot of great teachers out there. But sometimes you just got to take what you've learned and run with it and not be so beholden to everything that's being done out there. And you just got to be yourself. I think some people feel the need to, you know, not make a move unless they've seen it on one of the videos or heard it on one of the podcasts. You know, you cannot be afraid. You got to venture out on your own. You got to try different stuff counter to what everybody else is doing because that's when some magic can happen sometimes. And you discover something new, uh, not only about a technique, but about yourself. And so consider this, consider that you don't necessarily need to do everything 
as it's done on YouTube or on a podcast or any of this stuff. And that you actually probably have a great idea of how to do it on your own. And sometimes I hear, you know, people doing things in such strange ways. And in the past, I've kind of shaken my head and gone, oh, why would you do that? But as I get older, I realize, you know what? Whatever works, whatever gets the job done, who gives a shit, right? You've heard me say it in the past on this show a bazillion times. And that is, as long as the meal tastes good, nobody gives a shit what stove you cooked it on or what pans you used or silverware, cutlery. Uh, I know those are the same thing, silverware, cutlery. But honestly, really, if you're doing a great job, sure, you. there's always something to learn. You know me, I'm a big fan of that. But sometimes there's so much noise, there's so much information, and sometimes you need to just shut it off and have confidence in yourself and everything that you've learned and just do it. Sometimes I see these posts on forums where people are like, hey, I've got a thousand bucks and I'm putting together a, you know, a small, you know, home studio and, or, you know, however much they have, I don't know, a thousand bucks, I just threw that out there. And, and they're waiting for everybody to chime in before they make a move. And, you know, I, I know it's good to get advice, 100%, not saying that that's a bad thing. But sometimes you really just gotta, like, if you're gonna be that person, uh, take your money and figure out what your needs are. Not what everybody else's needs are and not what everybody else's opinion is. It's super vital to think for yourself and understand what is important for your audio world. All of us are coming from different perspectives. You know, on these rants, I talk about all kinds of shit, right? But at the end of the day, some of these things that I have to say, they may not work for you. And some of the things that you're learning from all these other you know, channels, you know, that, there's no guarantee any of that's going to work for you. And once again, I'm just going to remind you that I'm not saying that all that stuff out there is crap. There's a, there's so much good stuff out there. Really, there is. I mean, there's some really talented people teaching some awesome stuff, but you just got to pause sometimes and take a break from it. Think for yourself, do your own thing, come up with your own ideas. And you never know where that will lead you. That could lead you to a great client. Uh, it could lead, lead you to your own YouTube channel or podcast. It could lead a number of directions. So that's it. I, I could beat this one into the ground as usual with any topic I bring up. But I just want to encourage you all to be yourselves, do your thing, whatever works, as long as the job is getting done uh, in a quality way and your clients are happy. That's, I mean, honestly, and, 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 and as long as you're getting taken care of financially from doing what you do to help your clients, that's all that matters, really. Clients got to be happy. You got to be happy. And all the opinions of everybody else out there and their techniques and ideas, they're great, but your ideas are probably great too. So have a little confidence in yourself and make a move, whatever works. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. All right, let's get to it. Chris Clark here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Let's dive right in. Where did you grow up? And tell me about how music played a part in your upbringing. I grew up in a small town in Texas called Commerce. And Commerce is about 70 miles northeast of Dallas. So I was close to a big city, but it's actually quite a, quite a small place. My parents were both teachers. My mom was a librarian, school librarian for many years. 
And my dad is still currently and became a college music professor. But when I was a kid, he wasn't doing that. He actually was out of music for many years. And I think I'll get to that probably later because it's an interesting part of my story. So I grew up in commerce and I got interested in band in the sixth grade, which is when we started there, started playing trombone. My dad is a trombone player also. However, he wasn't actually playing at the time when I chose my instrument in fifth grade. The middle school band director came to our elementary school and brought all the instruments and I thought trombone sounded cool and the uh, band director could make the sound of an 18-wheeler changing gears with the slide and playing. So, of course, as a fifth grade boy, I thought that was super cool. So that's what I chose. And it was only kind of in the back of my mind that I knew my dad had played trombone. So anyway, I started playing and my parents did another thing that I thought, especially in hindsight, was really smart, was they hired somebody not in our family to teach me trombone lessons. So about eighth grade, I got connected with the gentleman who was the university trombone teacher at the university in the town where I grew up. His name was Neil Humfeld. And Neil was a really kind, caring person, but also a great musician. And so I had the chance to study with him from basically the end of eighth grade all through high school. And I benefited a lot from my dad's background in music. We did a lot of listening as a kid. Being a small town and before the internet age, I did not have much to do. So my parents and I spent a lot of time throughout the week, generally every night, listening to vinyl. My dad had a pretty big record collection. And so there were usually two things we listened to. We'd either listen to old orchestral recordings or we'd listen to a lot of big band. And so I grew up with that sound in my head. And so that's what really attracted me to the profession and just all the great music that's out there. Of course, I always loved rock and pop music, but what we really listened to on an almost nightly basis was orchestral music, specifically old Chicago Symphony, Fritz Reiner, all those old RCA and Mercury Living Presence recordings. And I just had that sound like stuck in my head from those years. Such a brilliant move for them to hire somebody else. Yes. And as a parent now of kids who are getting into their own things, I see the wisdom in that even more than I did previously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As parents, it's our job to kind of guide them. But as far as, you know, teaching, it's like putting that into somebody else's hands because they just, they're so much more receptive. Yeah. You can pretty much be assured that any suggestion you offer to a teenager is probably going to be followed up quickly by an argument. So <laughs> that's good. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a pretty small town in Texas, right? About 8,000 people. Yeah. Pretty small. Not a lot to do. Not much. No. Wow. <laughs> what about the influence of music? Let's just say at the time, you know, uh, rock music, was that creeping into your world at all? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think that a lot of it was just radio play at mm -hmm. the time. A lot of the rock and pop my folks had, especially on record, was all 60s and 70s rock. Mm. So what we did listen to was generally from that era. And I was pretty solely focused on classical and jazz from a young age. I gravitated to that really fast. Classical music in particular had a real appeal to me. 
it was what I could do. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anyone in a band, in a rock band. I didn't have any friends that played in rock bands. So I played in my high school band, which was playing band music. And I did play later in a youth orchestra in the Dallas area, which was great. I had a great conductor there who was really great with the kids. Very motivating, inspiring person to play for. And so I just got more and more interested in that world. It's fascinating to me because of my upbringing in public school band, but I also had the influence of older brothers who had friends in bands and the idea that that didn't like completely take over everyone's life. (laughs) What, everybody didn't grow up exactly like me? Yeah. No, no. It's So it's (laughs) intriguing to me that that was like the center of your universe. Did your dad as a player, did he... Did you feel pressure from him? So, so like I said earlier, he wasn't playing actually when I started. And my dad had taken about a 20-year break from playing trombone and had gone to graduate school and kind of gotten just bored or disenchanted with the music business, wasn't interested. And our family had a, a farm and a department store, I guess for lack of a better term, in this town where I grew up. And so he came back to work in the family business and kind of quit playing. And... I'm not really sure exactly what caused him to pick his horn back up, but he got interested in it again and started playing. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And while I was in high school during those years, he was kind of kind of reinventing himself as a musician. Hmm. And so he would come home for lunch from his job during the day and practice, pick up his trombone and do his warm-up routine and do some practicing. And by the time I graduated high school, He was back in school himself. He was finishing his master's in music. And at the time, my teacher, Neil Humfeld, had had cancer for many years. And he passed away the fall of my freshman year of college. And so my dad was his graduate assistant and ended up teaching for him and kind of went from there. He kept teaching, kept playing, and fully re-immersed himself in the music business. So the question, did he pressure me any? He actually did not. And I think this was another place where my parents were pretty, pretty wise. I had taken piano as a kid and they made me practice. Uh, They were paying for lessons. I had to practice. I hated it. I was terrible at it. I'd cry. You know, it was just, it was terrible. This was like (laughs) second, third grade. So I think when I got into high school, they kind of realized like if I was going to do it, it was going to be because I wanted to do it myself. I was never made to practice. I always wanted to. I enjoyed it. My dad did have a really great guilt technique, which I highly recommend, and I'll I'll describe it to you. He would come into my practice room, or if I come home from school and I'd be like, "Ah, I don't really feel like practicing today. And my dad would just, he'd kind of look at me and he'd say, you know, all those kids from those big high schools in Dallas are probably practicing. It's okay. You don't have to. And so what he was referring to was we'd have all state, tryouts and all that. So he would just say that and then he would leave. He would walk out of the room and I would be like, oh man, I'd go pick up my horn and practice for an hour or whatever. <laughs> but it was, it was great. Just a little bit of guilt, you know, at the right time goes a long way. Just a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. Where did you go to college? So I left home for college. I went to a small music school in Philadelphia called the Curtis Institute of Music. And Curtis is a very small place around 150 students or so, solely focused on 
classical music. I was one of four trombone players in the school at the time. Got my bachelor degree there, studied with a great gentleman named Glenn Dodson, who was formerly the principal trombone player in the Philadelphia Orchestra. So I had a great exposure to a lot of young classical musicians and chamber music and orchestral music there. Getting to the professional level, I'm curious about your mindset, like in college, as you got out of college, like what were you thinking? What were you planning? What were you scheming? (laughs) So my plan, just like pretty much every, at least trombone player that goes to a music conservatory is that they're going to get a job as an orchestral trombone player. They're going to play in the New York Philharmonic or the Philadelphia Orchestra or the Dallas Symphony or whatever group they can audition for and win the audition and get the job. And so I was solely focused on that throughout college and on into graduate school. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't have an interest in other things. That was just the only thing I knew and also the only environment I was in, really. We'll get to the audio thing, I know, but... Just that immersing yourself in that singular kind of environment, and that's if that's what you know and that's all you're exposed to and that's what everyone else around you is doing, it's pretty easy to just narrow that focus to that one thing. So mm-hmm. my sole goal was to get a job playing, playing trombone. And what does it take to do that? Because I, I have zero experience in that kind of music outside of the public school environment. Sure. Good question. So most most orchestras and even the military bands in D.C. are the same way. Essentially, when there's an opening for a position, they'll have a cattle call audition. Everyone's invited, generally speaking. Sometimes they screen resumes for a round. Sometimes they'll do what we used to call a tape round. Now it's usually video that you have to provide. And you get invited to come to the audition, and then you go and you play usually there's a list of excerpts. So you might go to a audition for an orchestra and they'll have 20 or 30 different excerpts on the list. And you're expected to be able to play any of those in any order during the audition. And they'll give you a list for the first round usually and you go in and play your round. And then they vote and pass people on to the next round based on if they like it or not. Most of these rounds these days are screened. So they're anonymous until normally until the final round sometimes auditions are completely anonymous and that is to keep the hiring as fair and equal as it can be solely based on your playing ability Hmm. that's interesting so when you say it's anonymous they're just they're just hearing a recording or they're hearing a blind live performance sorry blind live live performance so you'll walk into the room behind the screen and then the committee will be on the other side of the screen and they'll call out what they want to hear. Or usually there's a proctor there that's walking you through what the list of excerpts is and telling you what you need to play next. People have likened it to winning the lottery. I don't quite think it's that much chance involved, but (laughs) it does depend on playing your very best at a very particular time under pressure. So that's the main thing that's consistent across all these kinds of auditions. What was your first pro gig? Well, I'd say the the first professional job I ever played was I used to play with a big band down in Texas. We'd play dance band dates at country clubs. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. But my first audition I won was for the Marine Band where I play now. Wow. And so I took a lot of auditions, 20 or so of these auditions with varying degrees of success. You know, sometimes you fly out to a city and you show up the next day at the hall where the orchestra plays and you walk out on stage and you play and you play three tunes and they're like, okay, thanks a lot. And you're, you're done <laughs> and you go home. So I had some of those. I had a couple of auditions where I was a finalist. Um, I got close, but I wasn't hired. And then finally, uh, this job was one that I auditioned for and won and was hired for. So for me, it was pretty quickly became clear that it was a good fit for me. And so it's been where I've been since 1999, which is when I auditioned. We'll get to the audio thing, audience, but I just, I want to set this up here because this is interesting to me. So you currently play in the president's own Marine band. Is that? That's correct. Okay. When you become a member of that, are you technically a Marine? Yes, I am in all ways, shapes, and forms, a United States Marine. So I'm active duty Marine. I enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, in 1999, as I, as I commented. The difference with the military bands in DC and all of the service branches work this way is the bands here in DC are not the kind of jobs where you come to for a couple of years and then you get transferred away. They're permanent positions. So all my friends in the Army Band, the Navy Band, the Air Force, they come here, they stay up to an entire career, 20 years or more in that one band. That's pretty amazing. So I guess the, the military aspect or the, or the, there's no combat. No, that's one thing that does differentiate us from the Fleet Marine Music Program. There are other bands in the Marine Corps. There are 10 other bands currently. Those Marines do have secondary combat training and roles that they would play in times of war. We do not. The only thing I do for the Marine Band is play trombone. But otherwise, you abide by the rules of the Marine Corps. Correct. Yes. Recognition of, of rank and, and protocols and everything that would go into a Marine's life, except that you just happen to play trombone. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. You summed it up well, Matt. And that comes with, I assume, if you're in it for a period of time, that comes with a pension of some sort. It does, yes. In the military these days, although this is changing, but when I entered the military, it was 20 years of service to retirement, and you could retire with a pension at 20 years. You stay longer, you accumulate a little more pension, but essentially you had to stay 20 years. This has changed recently. People coming into the military now, it's a different retirement plan. You can leave earlier with less retirement, but you are able to leave prior to 20 years and still have something to show for it. When I came in, it was 20 years. If you left at 18, you wouldn't have any retirement unless you had saved separately for that. And just so the audience knows, when we say the president's own Marine Band, we're talking about when the president of the United States, no matter who that person is, is going to a, an event and they need the band, you're the band. That's correct. Yes. So the band was founded in 1798 and Jefferson was the first president that the band played for in 1801. 
Jefferson was a violinist himself. You know, he was an amateur musician. So he gave the band the, the nickname, The President's Own. So our mission is to provide music for the White House and for the Commandant of the Marine Corps. The Commandant is the head general of the Marine Corps. He's in charge of the whole shebang. But our main mission is to provide music for the White House. So, yes, anytime the, the White House needs any kind of music, they call us. And we have musicians that can basically play any kind of music they want, and we can do it at a moment's notice. And that's what we do. Wow. We could make a whole podcast just on your involvement in that band alone, I'm sure. It's intriguing to me. And I, for the audience, I've seen the band perform. They came to Lafayette here and performed at the, at the high school, actually, where my mm -hmm. kids go. And it was pretty mind-blowing. My youngest, who plays French horn, was, was blown away. It was really, awesome. really intriguing. Cool. Well, so let's, let's transition now. Let's talk about the role of audio. And it's intriguing to me because you're someone who's spent a lifetime really, really hyper-focused on their instrument, on playing in these scenarios. How did audio creep into your world? That's a great question. Well, it kind of started with a recording. You know, it's funny, Matt, over the years, as I listened to many, many episodes of your podcast. One of those things that keeps coming back is people's, the thing that brought them into it. And it's fun to hear everyone's kind of how they were captured by this art. I have a brass quintet that I've played with for many, many years, very good friends and colleagues in the Marine Band. And it's an outside thing we do outside of work. And the group's called Valor Brass. And Valor Brass in 2015, we recorded an album. We hired a local recording engineer, great engineer in the area named Ed Kelly. And Ed was our engineer. We had a good producer and we, we made an album. And the producer said to one of the other guys in the quintet said, hey, do you want to edit this album? And he said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, well, you're going to take all the recorded audio home and edit it. I'll show you how to do it. And you guys will put your album together that way. And we were kind of like, okay. And so my friend, whose name is Matt, took the audio and he did the editing. And it just like this light bulb went off in my head of like, oh my God, we can do this ourselves. Like <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Now, little did I know how hard Matt worked <laughs> to put all that together and, and the time he spent on it. So I kind of thought, well, that's pretty cool. Maybe I'll buy a couple microphones. And I think I bought a Zoom recorder or something, you know, and I'm like, I'm just going to record the group, record rehearsals, and then we'll be able to listen to everything we do. And so I bought a pair of mics and recorded the group and I was really excited and it just didn't sound very good. And I was like, oh, well, that's disappointing. Why did it not sound good? And so I started down this rabbit hole of like, <laughs> I want to make better brass quintet recordings. And then it just kind of went from there. And I, I discovered the thing that, that really brought me to it was that I was shocked to learn that I felt just as much a musician recording something as I did playing something. And I did not expect that at all. Like I would never have guessed that I could have that same feeling of 
satisfaction, artistic satisfaction by recording and putting this recording together as I could by playing my trombone part in this group. And so that was like the thing that, you know, as you, as you just said, I've been playing for a long time. I've been focused on this one thing for so long and I still love it and I enjoy doing it, but I want to do other things too. I want to have fun in music for many years to come and recording all of a sudden was like this whole new world. And I didn't just have to play trombone parts. I could record anything by, of any instrument in any kind of music. And it, it just totally captured me right from the beginning. It brings about a whole nother level of creativity for sure. And sonic exploration. You've been sitting in a chair, reading music in a group setting for many years. And this like completely transforms you to a different position to listen, to, to think differently about how audio is presented, how music is presented. When you said you bought a couple mics and recorded something and it didn't sound very good and you immediately started to ask why. And I laughed because it's like, oh yeah, here he goes. He's going over the edge. <laughs> there he goes down the rabbit hole. Yep. It's a black hole. <laughs> yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Now, and I just kind of want to bookend this a little bit, but I want to fill in the gaps too. Now you have a company called Clark Media Productions. Mm -hmm. Tell me if I'm right in summing this up. Essentially, you provide not only audio services, but video services as well. Mm -hmm. And you seem to cater to classical type scenarios. Is that accurate? That's hit the nail on the head. Exactly. To me, it's very, I don't know if you heard this episode, but Mary Masaryk in Chicago, who does a ton of public radio supported recordings. She's always posting on LinkedIn about stuff that she's doing. And I saw some of the pictures in the video of the stuff you're doing. And I thought, oh, wow, Mary, Mary and Chris are doing very similar things here. 
tell me about the business and tell me about how that came about. Well, it came about kind of, I don't want to say by necessity, but the amount of time it was starting to take. And I, at some point, my military career is going to be over. As a enlisted Marine, I can only stay a maximum of 30 years in the Marine Corps. And then you, you're required to retire at 30 years. So I've got a few more years to go before I hit that point. But I'm, like I said before, I'm really starting to have an itch to do something different, something still in music and musical, but just a different thing. So I started to think about what that was going to look like, you know, and what that next part of my life is going to be and where it's going to be and whether we want to stay here in the DC area, whether we want to move and all of these things. And then it became a thing of, I just had enough people asking me to make recordings for them that it seemed a natural fit. The video part, I will admit, I, I enjoy it. It's not what I really set out to do, but so many of the things that I record require that. And particularly the pandemic, and I, I knew this would happen, but it has come come to fruition is that the pandemic happened and everyone who didn't have recordings or video of concerts now are like, okay, now we need to make sure we have some video to put on our YouTube channel or to put on our website. And I understand that. And it's, it's tough for artists. It's tough for classical ensembles to budget for those kinds of things and to spend the money to make those kinds of things. But I mean, I think that's something the pandemic showed everyone was that if you don't have anything, you're really kind of stuck and you need to have something so that people understand what it is you do as a musician. That's kind of where I'm at. I love doing multi-day album sessions. I just did a couple this summer for some, some albums people wanted to record and they're, it's so much fun to really sit in a place and just record audio and see what kind of art comes out of those, those two or three or four day sessions. But a lot of live concerts, if they're going to spend the money to hire an engineer, they want video done as well. And I don't blame them. It's really important these days. It seems that what's involved there, at least from my experience of recording, I did a big band record. And one of the things that I love about working with, I guess those type of musicians, we'll just call them schooled musicians, is the onus is not on the engineer as much as it is with, we'll just say as a catch-all term, pop musicians, rock musicians, mm -hmm. because they're reading or they're, they're trained, they know how to play really well. And it's just kind of, it's in their DNA. Not to say that pop musicians don't know how to play. I'm, I'm sure if you go to a session in Nashville, which I think it's common knowledge, those musicians are like incredible or studio musicians in general. But yeah, when we're talking about, you know, small groups that get together, small ensembles in the classical world, I would imagine that you just don't have to do as much to capture it because it's all on them and their performance, really. It's a matter of mic placement, choice of venue, because that's going to play a major part in the decision-making and in the, in the presentation of that, that kind of music. Is that about right? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. Recording great musicians in a great space with great mics is pretty easy. <laughs> I mean, there's still some, there's still engineering that goes into it, but that is the thing everyone wants to do. 
just like any engineer would, you want to record great bands in a great studio with great equipment. And you combine that with a great producer and a great mastering engineer and all the other things that can go into making that final album or product as good as it can be. And it's, you know, that's really fun. It is a challenge though, to record live concerts and go to places with venues that are not so good or they have problems, acoustical problems, noise issues, and still come out of those with a nice recording. To me, those are also really satisfying. And to give those groups, maybe groups that haven't had those kinds of things before, they might be a young ensemble and they haven't had the budget to record an album yet. But they have a live recording now of a concert and it's a really good quality one and they can share that and they can put it out there and people can hear them and hear what potential they have. And to me, that's really satisfying, really enjoying, enjoyable too. Completely different set of techniques compared to making like a rock record. Mm. So how did you develop the techniques that you use today? Who are your influences? Well, one thing I did a few years ago is I, Berkeley has an online program. Mm -hmm. I enrolled in a number of courses there um, over a couple of years time and really kind of filled in some gaps audio fundamentals, technical knowledge. Mm. I took a great mixing course there with a, an awesome engineer named Rachel Alina. I think she has a studio in Brooklyn. She taught that. I took a mastering course, which was really great. And then besides that, I'm around professional engineers in the Marine Band all the time. And we have four fantastic engineers. And they have been so generous with their time over the years. And, you know, if I have a question or we want to talk, just talk gear or listen to stuff, they're always up for a discussion. And those guys have been really great to me. But a lot of the, the classical techniques are pretty standard in, in our world, especially with DAWs and the way we use DAWs. You know, there's not a lot of takes and comping of takes as you might do in a rock recording. There's a type of editing called source to destination editing, which some people seem familiar with, others don't, but there's only a couple of DAWs that do it. Sequoia and Pyramix are the two that I know of. And so basically you have two timelines. You know, I may end up with a multi-day session, just one long timeline of audio. It's all on one timeline. And so my producer's gonna go through and give me time code or places in the score where they wanna edit and then I'll go into that and you're essentially pasting those pieces into a new timeline. And so it's a really, it's a pretty fast way to work. I don't think it's as fast as probably what you do, but it's, it's a good way to take multiple days worth of material and edit them down into something comprehensive. And the choice of gear, I guess in, in any classical recordist case, you're planning for portability really. You're not, yeah. you're not planning for, I mean, unless you work up at Skywalker Sound up here and mm -hmm. have a big stage, for the yep. most part, you're, you're planning for portability. So can you talk about that, about, mm -hmm. you know me, I don't go down gear rabbit holes, but I'm just curious, like what's involved in, in putting all that together? Like what kind of gear do you choose? So yeah, portability is very important. It's kind of like a live sound gig, I guess. You're loading up your car, you're going to the 
to the recording. And if it's a concert, I'm unloading, setting up. So it's got to be a reasonable amount of gear. Many times before concerts, it's hard to get into a hall more than a couple hours ahead of time. I love to have three hours to set up. Sometimes I only have two, sometimes it's one. And so that may affect how many mics I can put up, where I can put them. So I have a portable interface, rack mounted interface, laptop. I usually take two laptops, I run a backup. And other than that, just good collection of mics and functional stands and things that I can manage on my own most of the time. I do have an assistant that works with me quite a bit named Will, Will Sampson. Will's a great musician. He's got great ears. He can also act as a producer on a lot of the recordings we do. And so if it's not the two of us, then I have to be able to do it by myself. And the other thing I will say that goes into it besides portability is the reliability. And having a system that you're going to roll into a site, set it up, turn it on, and everything works every time is so critical. I have a mix pre also that I do use my mix pre sometimes, and I think it's a great piece of gear. Sound devices, yeah. Yep. And if I was starting over, I would probably start with a really good pair of Omni mics and a mix pre and just go with that for a while and not not try to do more than that until I really understood how to use those pieces of gear as well as I could. Was it an interesting thing for your wife to observe like, Hey, you're spending some money on some stuff. What's going on? Well, you did ask too about how the business came about. So that was one of those discussions we had of like, so is this just going to be a real expensive hobby or are you really going to do this? And so yeah, we definitely have talked about it, had discussions about it. And, you know, I think she understands what it takes to be able to do it. And I sit down and we talk about it and I try to explain, well, this thing does this and here's why I need to be able to do that. I also rent a lot of gear too, hmm. especially camera gear. And so one of the things that I used to be into photography many years ago in the film photography days and one of the things when I bought a digital camera that dawned on me pretty quick was this is just a computer. And so just like your computer, five, six, eight years down the road, it's going to be pretty much worthless. So I'm trying to, those types of gear, I mean, obviously I own my interface and I own my laptop and those things that I use every single gig, but cameras and other things that can get outdated quickly, I'm trying to just rent and I'm finding that to be a really great way to go for gear. Some of these recordings too, if they require a whole lot of microphones, I'll rent microphones too. You know, it takes a long time to build up that kind of mic locker and that kind of studio. And I'm just trying not to rush into it, buy gear I don't need, put off buying gear as, as long as I can until I really need it. I think that's become an important thing to understand about running it as a business. Plus renting gear allows you to experiment. And one of my weaknesses is I love to try things. And it took me a few years to realize that I don't need to buy the things I want to try. <laughs> so sometimes <laughs> I bought stuff that ultimately I, I realized, oh, I guess I really just wanted to try that out. I didn't really need to buy that. So there's, there's a lot that goes into a business like this, like first and foremost, insurance. 
Yep. He got all that stuff sitting out in a public arena. And I mean, mm-hmm. not like it's not a type of music that one would associate with crime, but you know, Hey, <laughs> if there's an opportunity, somebody might walk off with a microphone. So you've got insurance, you've got to whittle down your choices of gear. So you're not leaving stuff out in the car, of course, is especially if you're by yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The insurance thing is interesting. Of course, ensuring the gear for its value is important. Mm. But, you know, one of the things that occurred to me early on was you're recording an orchestra and you trip and knock a mic stand over and it lands on a violin. Mm. How are you going to pay for that? That's right. That can be very expensive proposition. And, you know, that was the last thing I knew for me that a quick way to make something you love not fun is to have something like that happen. So through the recommendation of a good friend of mine, I found a company that not just provided gear insurance, but also liability as well on the job. So that's an important thing when we go out into halls and and do those recordings. Could you name that company? CNA are the initials. CNA. And I have to forget what that stands for. I can look it up. I'll send it to you. Okay. I'll, you send it to me. I'll put it in the show notes because I'm sure that there's some people yeah. in the audience who are going to want to know that information. Yeah. CNA is the provider. Originally, they developed it for photographers, this type of insurance, but it's for people who have gear and they're going out and doing things in public or in private places and they need liability insurance. So what have been the big challenges and stumbling blocks for you as you've developed this whole thing? I mean, the the number one thing for me right now is because I am still in the Marine Band and my job is still to play trombone for the Marine Corps, I have to maintain those skills above and beyond everything. So time management can be tough. With a business, I only have so much time that I can devote to blocking out days on my calendar to make recordings. You know, the post-production is a little bit more flexible because I can do that at home, at night, early mornings, that kind of thing. So the time, the time management is, has been important. You know, I'd say I can be an impatient person and whenever I don't have the patience to do things the right way the first time, I think that's a, that's a spot where I tend to catch myself sometimes like, ugh, I should have taken the extra time and listened all the way through this track before I put my stamp on it or whatever it is, you know, just being thorough with things. I've had to learn to get better at that. I like to, to get things done and move on to the next thing. I don't like things dragging on. So I think that's probably the, the two number one things. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. You've got two things in your life, the Marine Corps itself, and you also being a musician, how have those two things in your experience and those things dictated how you handle this aspect of your life that is starting to become what I assume is, is a growing thing and will only continue to grow. Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, I've have to prioritize the Marine band and that's something that has never been in, in question for me. And also it helps that I love what I do. I think a lot of musicians look at the military as like, how could I ever, how would that ever work for me? How could I ever fit into that culture? And I think, Rather than looking at it that way, I think it's more the type of person you are. And I love the challenges and the variety of things we get to do. Mm -hmm. 
I'm the grandson of World War II veterans. So for me, getting to serve in that way, although I didn't think about that a lot before I joined, I thought about it a little, but it's become more important to me the longer I've spent here. Yeah, that kind of sums it up for me. And I think, well, more specifically, I, I think what I'm asking is, is how does, how does your time in the Marine Corps and being a musician affect the recording? Like your approach, the lessons that you've learned about life and playing and, and discipline and things like that, are they, are they making their way into the world of recording for you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think when you're surrounded by people who will basically do anything they're asked to do. And I say that in a very complimentary way. There are times where the band is asked to do things that most musicians would probably not be willing to do unless they were paid a whole lot of money to do it. <laughs> and that's things like playing out in really cold or really hot weather, things like that that we are expected to do that the band does really well. But the professionalism, the thoroughness, when I look at the engineers that work for the band and the, the attention to detail and the care they take with not even our, our albums, which are great, but just even just setting up for a summer concert where we're playing outside, it's hot as hell, and they're out there just doing everything they can to make it sound great. And I'm always impressed, but even more so, it's inspiring to me to see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had the benefit of watching that for a long time now and getting to see that in all, all of my colleagues. So it's very motivating for sure. What's also interesting to me is the fact that, so you've been in it over 20 years and like you said, you could make it a 30 year career if you really wanted to, no matter what your decision about that, you're also creating this whole new career mm -hmm. that could really take you through your remaining years, which would be pretty fascinating that it's like a whole second career. Yeah. Well, that's what I hope to do. <laughs> I've had a lot of discussions with people about that because it's, so I'm age, I'm 49 now. It's a little bit daunting to start something new later in life. And I, I don't feel like I'm that much later in life. My, my younger colleagues might think differently, but it's definitely the kind of thing you're like, wow, have I, have I missed the boat? Have I not done all the things I need to do to be able to do this career? The more I, the more I think about it, the more I get into it. And as you well know, there's a lot of years left. There's a lot of good music left to make. There's a lot of great music left to record. And I think it's only going to increase. I think there's only going to be more. So I'm really looking forward to what the next chapter is for me. Hopefully it's going to be a long, a long story. If you think about it, I mean, if you get out of the, the Marine Corps and you have a pension and then you have a, a functioning business that isn't losing money and you've got work, it's like, I mean, gosh, you're only going to get better over time. You have a complete understanding of the type of music you're recording. So it's not like you're you know, hey, I just decided to record one day and, oh, classical music. Sure, I'll record that. You know this music and you know how to read music and, and, and understand what the needs are of those clients. So to me, at minimum, it seems that on the edge of 50, there's at least starting with 30 years, if not slightly more. 
that you have of doing this. It's uh, to me, I I'm kind of excited for you, honestly, because wow, I think thanks. it's like super cool. Plus, it's just not something I do. So it's intriguing seeing the pictures of the gear and going, oh, interesting. He only has to take that, you know, that he takes a laptop and that and a certain selection of mics. And it's not yeah. like, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's a different, it's a different thing. Yeah, for sure. What would you say to some others out there who are thinking of the same thing or thinking of doing exactly this? Get the background you need while you can, whether that means, I say more schooling, not with the idea that you need to run out and get a degree, but more schooling from the standpoint of maybe you need a course here or there. And it could be an online thing. That's what I did. It worked great for me. It might be a community college. It might be a class at a university near you. But take the time to get that knowledge as much as you can and don't be afraid to call yourself what you want to be. I've just about made that flip in my mind, although it's hard because some days I am a trombone player and that's what I am doing in the moment and I have to be still on top of that. But in my mind, I'm an engineer and a producer and I'm not afraid to tell people that now it's okay to make your own path. In my experience in the classical music world, there's a lot of guilt associated with not doing the thing you set out to do. You go to school to play in an orchestra and you feel guilty that you maybe didn't do that or that you weren't successful at that or that you found another calling. And I would say, if you have another calling, go after it and enjoy it. It should be fun. And this is all about music. And if that's what you love doing, then so be it. Get after it. And then what about the business aspect of what you're trying to do? Obviously, you've been fully employed as a trombonist for many years now. Did you have some things to learn about business and how to, or what to charge? Yeah, for sure. And I'm still, I'm still working at that. It's an ongoing thing. There's so much to know about running a business and they certainly don't teach that in music school. You know, I think the important thing for me has been to learn to pay myself out of the business, you know, and that to know that all the money coming in, you can't get paid for a gig and take all that money and put it on gear, or you can't take all that money and keep it. You have to save for taxes. You have to save for renting gear, paying your assistant, paying yourself. All those things are part of it. And so I think the earlier you can treat it that way, if you know it's what you want to do, then be serious about those aspects of it and learn as much as you can about how to handle those aspects of your business. I do have someone that does my taxes and I've mm -hmm. paid him for many, many years, long before I started into this. So that's been great. That's a great safety. Feels like a safety net, you know, mm -hmm. that every year when I write a check to him for whatever he charges me to do my taxes, it feels like money well spent. Oh yeah. And that peace of mind, having money in the bank to pay those taxes is also just great peace of mind. Yeah, I I think those are the biggest things and the and the pricing, how to price your work. I mean, I decided early on I didn't want to do this for free and I didn't want to be cheap. 
I don't want to be the the cheapest game in town. And I, in fact, yesterday I had a I had a proposal I had submitted to an organization to record a season's worth of concerts, and they came back and they said, "Hey, I'm sorry, but there was someone else that quoted us, and they were a thousand dollars per concert less than you." And it was like, "Okay, cool. You know what? If Great. someone's willing to do that, then." Not only can I not, I'm not going to compete with that because I won't be in business. And then it will just be an expensive hobby for me. So, you know, I'm willing to say no to some things in order to pay myself and pay my assistant what I feel like it's worth for the time. And that's another thing with being older is that I'm not willing to do a lot of the things I was when I was 22. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've got a family and I value that time. A lot. So if I'm going to take time away from that, then it has to be worth worth my while, both financially, but also musically and artistically. Always the benefit of getting into audio uh, a little bit later in life. And I know when I, whenever I talk about this, I always refer back to Sarah Carter, who has been on the show a couple of times. I just think that, that having that life experience and then getting in and going, eh, I think I'm going to do it a bit different than the average person. That's, that's really interesting to hear. Well, I will put a link in the show notes to clarkmediaproductions.com audience. You got to go check that out and reach out to Chris if you want to hire him or have any questions. So thanks, Chris. Really great to talk to you about this. Like I say, I don't do this. So fascinating world you have there. Thanks, Matt. It's an honor to be on. Happy to have you on. So we'll chat with you later. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $2.99. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Chris Clark here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. want to remind you to head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips to get the 15 tips to help you survive as an audio pro. And those are tips that were pulled from interviews from Jack and Dino, Steve Albini, Andrew Sheps, and Eric Valentine. And I think you'll get a lot out of it. So head on over there and download that PDF. But I want to thank my crew. That, of course, includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell in the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with the magical voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Always feel free to send me a message if you have a question, which you can do at matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, 
and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 